0: So we have a we have a phrase in our evangelical churches that we often say in order to help us understand what our relationship as Christians should be to the world. And that phrase goes something like this. Christians are in the world but not That's right. You know it really well. Christians are in the world but not of the world. This phrase is helpful, but I think that it needs some sharpening. I think it needs some sharpening. Uh, Often when I hear this phrase, it, it seems to me that it puts us as Christians on the defensive. It makes us passive. I get the feeling that we're basically saying something like, Well, here we are, stuck in this world, and so we really need to do our best to not be of the world. This phrase, it seems to me, makes the goal of the Christian life, the mission of the Christian life, as retreating from the world. Doing our best to remain out of the world. Being in the world, not of the world. This is not a direct quotation from scripture, but this idea is found in a few different places. And in particular, it is a paraphrase of Jesus' words in John chapter 17. And I think in these words, we're going to see the way in which this phrase, in the world but not of the world, needs a bit of sharpening for us. So turn with me to John chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 13 through 19. These verses come when Jesus is in the upper room. He has has just... Uh, got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet, and he is about to be arrested, and he is about to be crucified. And he is praying for the disciples and for all believers in the world. And he says in John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19, he says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, that is, his disciples, May have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. In the way that we typically understand this phrase, Christians are in the world, but not of the world, it takes our starting point as being in the world— In the goal of our life to be not of the world. But that is not the order according to Jesus. Here in John 17, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, Jesus says that the starting point is that we are not of the world. And that we are then sent into the world as Jesus was sent. Do you see that order? Jesus says, they are not of the world. They do not belong to this place. Any more than I belong to this place. But just Father, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. And so rather than saying that we are in the world but not of the world, I think we need to say this Followers of Jesus are not of the world, but we are sent by Jesus into the world. Christians are not of the world. We do not belong to this place. This is not where our identity lies, but we are sent into the world. Our starting place is in our heavenly place, and that we are sent from there into the world. Last week, Pastor Rick talked about the exodus. It was a story about God's people being delivered out of the bondage of slavery and set free by God so that they could move toward the promised land. It was a great sermon. We are blessed to have Pastor Rick, aren't we? In the story of the Exodus, this story of God's saving work in the life of Israel, in this story, there is a strong emphasis on God's work to make Israel not of Egypt. To separate them from Egypt. To make sure that Israel has nothing to do with Egypt. God's work in the Exodus required Israel to not compromise their worship by staying in Egypt. But instead to follow God out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into freedom. And what we learned last week is that throughout the rest of the scriptures, Egypt becomes a metaphor or an image for sin that we have been set free from. We are not of the world. We are to be separate from sin, to have nothing to do with sin, to not compromise our worship with sin, but instead to walk in freedom, the freedom that God has given us to be free from sin. And so the New Testament looks back at the Exodus story as a foreshadowing of the salvation that would come through Jesus Christ, who would be for us the Passover lamb, whose blood covers our lives so that we can be set free from sin. And so in the Exodus story, in chapters 1 through 18, there is a strong emphasis on Israel's calling to separate from Egypt, to be set free from their identity as slaves. Israel was called to be a holy people. A people set apart from all the other nations of the earth. A people not of the world. Today, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to read about how God calls Israel into the world. In Exodus chapter 19, we read that God saves Israel... That God sets them apart, makes them a people whose identity is not of this world, with the intention to then send them to be a light to the nations. And the same is with us as believers today. We have been saved by Christ. We are no longer of the world. We are given a new identity as children of the King, and then we are sent into the world by Christ our King as people who bear this new identity and who go with this message of the gospel. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to walk through uh, this calling of Israel after the Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, God's people have been out of Egypt now for about three months. They have now headed out into the desert, and they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God, and God instructs Moses to go to the Israelites and to say these words. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they had set out for Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai And Israel camped there in the desert in the front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God begins his words to Moses and to the Israelites by making it very clear that Israel was chosen by God. It was God's action that delivered them. Israel, you have been chosen and saved by God. It was you, it was I who brought you out of Egypt. This was God's work in Israel. It was God who chose Israel and saved them from slavery. And in these first few verses of Exodus chapter 19, as God speaks to Israel, we receive a pattern for the work of God in the life of Israel that also applies to our own life as well. In these verses, we read that first, God says and reminds them, I have saved you. And then he says to them, I have given you a new identity. And then he says, I have given you a mission. God saves Israel. He gives them a new identity, and he gives them a mission. God acts first, and he calls his people to respond. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is the starting point for Israel in understanding God's work in their lives. God acts first and calls us then to respond. God says to them, I am the one who has done this for you. I am the one who has carried you out of Egypt. And then he commands them to obey. The sequence of events in Israel's history is important for us to understand because it's the same for our own salvation and for our own life as well. The message of Exodus chapter 19 was not this. Here is God's law, Israel, and if you obey God's law, then I will set you free from Egypt. The message was, you have seen how I have redeemed you. Now out of response to my action in your life, now obey me. God did not come to Moses while he was in Egypt, while he was in slavery, and say, Hey, Moses, here's my law. And if you and your people of Israel, if you obey it well enough, then I'm going to set you free in Egypt. We'll just kind of see how you do for a while. It's not what happens. God heard the cries of Israel in Egypt, and he came down and rescued them from their slavery before they did anything at all. God's action is first Receiving and remembering his salvation in our life is what compels us to respond. It's what compels us to worship. It's what compels us to obey, is understanding his salvation in our life. We don't offer our obedience to God in hopes then to get something from God. I hear this all of the time as I'm talking with people, and I wrestle with it in my own heart, believing that God's salvation for me depends somehow on my obedience or my goodness. We don't obey God in order to put God into some position where he then owes us something. All of God's saving action comes before our obedience to him. While the people were slaves in Israel, God delivered them. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We don't obey him in order to be saved. We obey him because he first loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We love him because he first loved us. And so God says to Israel, and he says to each one of us, you have seen how I have saved you, how I have carried you on eagle's wings to myself, and now walk in obedience to me. After reminding Israel of his salvation in their life, God then gives them a new identity, and He gives them a mission or a purpose or a task in the world. So let's begin with Israel's identity. Verse five of chapter 19. "Now if you obey me, obey me fully and keep my covenant down out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession." This is Israel's new identity. No longer the possession of Egypt. You are now my possession. And treasure is an interesting word. In this time period when Egypt was deli- or when Israel was delivered from slavery, people, common people, did not own any property. Uh, ownership all belonged to the king of that people. When a king at that time would conquer a territory, everything within that territory belonged to him. Everyone else just borrowed it or used it. But it all belonged to him. Everything in the territory belonged to him. But the stuff that was in the king's house, it was called his treasure. What he literally possessed was his treasure. What is God saying here? Israel, you are special to me. You belong in my house. I have redeemed you. I have saved you. My work in your life is unique among all the peoples of the world, and I love you. Remember, you are my unique treasure in all the earth. Although the whole earth is mine, you are my treasure. Understanding our identity in the eyes of God... Becomes before our obedience to him. If we do not properly understand our identity in the eyes of God, then our obedience to him will always be at best done begrudgingly and will almost always fail to do it. If we believe that we are slaves to some horrible slave master up in the sky, then our obedience will always be done at best reluctantly. If we believe that God is distant and far off and really doesn't care much about what we do, then our actions will reflect that. But, if we believe that our identity is his children, as his treasure, if we believe that we are sons and daughters of a father who loves us deeply, who desires the best for us, who sacrificed everything for us so that he could be with us, then our obedience will be our joy, knowing that. That identity in Christ. So properly understanding our identity in the eyes of God is essential to right obedience with a joyful and willing heart. Understanding our salvation and understanding our identity both come before obedience. But obedience is important and it does come next. After being reminded that God saved them through the Exodus, after being reminded that they are God's treasured possession, God says to them that if they obey his law, then he will be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Once again, God does not say, If you obey me, then I will carry you on eagles' wings and bring you to myself. God says to them, If you obey me, then you will fulfill your mission. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Our salvation is not dependent on our obedience, but effectiveness in our mission, in our calling, is dependent on our obedience. Without obedience, we will not fulfill God's calling and purposes in our life. So let's talk about this mission, this calling of Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First, a kingdom of priests. In Israel, the tribe that was chosen to be priests were the Levites. And we can learn a lot about what it means for us to be priests by studying the Levites. Uh, When the Israelites conquered the promised land, and we'll see this next week in the book of Joshua, the land was divided up among all of the different tribes of Israel. And all of the tribes received a portion of land for themselves. The only exception to that was the tribe of Levi, who received no land of their own. Instead, the tribe of Levi was planted, scattered throughout all of these other 11 tribes in Israel. The priests in Israel then were to be those people who lived among the people and who spoke to the people on behalf of God. They were called to teach people about God, to instruct them in the ways of the law. They spoke to people about God in order that God would be known to the people. It was through the work of the priests that the people came to know God and also to know that they were forgiven by God through the the work of the sacrifices that the priests did in the temple. So the priests were called to, on behalf of God, speak to the people and to make God known to them. In the other direction, the priests were also called to pray and to make sacrifices on behalf of the people for God. It was through the priests that the, the sacrifices were made and the people came to know their forgiveness. This is what the priests were for Israel, to stand as intermediators between God and Israel, to speak to Israel about God, and to speak to God about the people of Israel. The Levites, this priestly tribe, these ones who were called to pray, were scattered throughout all of these different 11 tribes so that they could do this work. If they were far, far away from all the other tribes... Everybody else would have to go to them. But God places these priests, these people who are called to be holy, who would be called to be filled with the knowledge of God, he places all of them in the midst of all the tribes. You see that picture? It's a beautiful one. They were called to live among the other 11 tribes so that their lives of holiness would be an example to people, so that they could speak the word of God to people, and so that they could speak to God on behalf of the people. And so now here, God says to Israel that they as a whole people are now going to play a similar role among the nations. You, Israel, will be a kingdom of priests. Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. As descendants of Abraham, they were called to go and to be a blessing to the nations. And so just as the priests within Israel went about the task of teaching others about God, about making sacrifices to God so that the people could know they were being forgiven, in the same way now, Israel as a whole was to play this role among the nations. As they lived among the pagan nations, they were called to be a light as a means of God's revelation to the world. As the world watched Israel, they were to make God known to the world. The priests in Israel were to make God known to the people of Israel, and now God calls the people of Israel as a nation to play that role for the nations. If they obey him, if they obey him, they will be a kingdom of priests. And God gives them another task as well, very closely related to being a kingdom of priests. But he says to Israel that they will be a holy nation. Part of Israel's mission was to be a nation, a society of people set apart for a special purpose. Israel was not simply to be a congregation of worshipers who come together once a week in a temple to talk about God a little bit and to offer these sacrifices. They were to be a nation, a people with a specific way of life, a specific culture, a people with certain kinds of practices and celebrations. They were to be a nation of people that pointed people to God. So, after God gives them this call in Exodus chapter 9, God gives them the law. And the rest of the book of Exodus and the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are an explanation of God's law. The law for Israel was instructions on how to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you obey me, if you follow my law, then you will fulfill this high calling that I have for you. The law gave them instructions about how to relate to one another as fellow Israelites and how to relate to foreigners and aliens and strangers. It talks about what to do if those uh, people among Israel don't live that kind of holy life. The purpose of the law was to be their way of life in the world. Their way of life among the nations was intended by God to be a remarkable and beautiful thing that the nations all took notice of and watched. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read a few verses there, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five through eight. God says to Israel, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws of this, as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Obedience to the law was to prompt the nations to inquire about this God that Israel worshipped. The law was not given to Israel as a means of salvation for them. The law was never intended by God to be a way for Israel to merit their own salvation. The law for Israel was to be for them their way of life in the midst of the nations that was unique among any of the other nations at that time. Be holy as I am holy is a constant refrain throughout the law. They were called to live in the world in a way that reflected the holiness and character of God. Now we know that the rest of the Old Testament, for the most part, Israel failed to fulfill this purpose. They rarely lived up to it. And through their failure, it was revealed to Israel through God's prophets that there would be a Messiah. A suffering servant who would come and fulfill this calling of Israel perfectly. That there would one who would be the priest and the holy one who would serve as a perfect intermediator between God and man. And that comes soon in the biblical story, as we'll see in the next few months. But here in Exodus 19, God calls Israel to be this kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God saved them through the exodus. He made them a people who were were not of this world, who had a different identity than anyone else, in order to send them into the world to be this kingdom of priests and this holy nation in the world. Now turn with me to the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to finish here today. 1 Peter chapter 2, going to read 1 verses 9 through 10. Peter here is writing to the church, a people who are both Jew and Gentile, people who have come to know and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And Peter begins his letter, I think, very interestingly, by addressing it to God's people scattered throughout the world. And listen to what Peter says to them: You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging. Whose treasured possession, peoples whose treasured possession is to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear Exodus chapter 19 in Peter's words? We can't really miss it, can we? Peter gives. The church, the same identity and the same calling as God gave to Israel after the exodus. You are a chosen people. You have been chosen. If you know the Messiah Jesus, then you have been rescued from slavery. You have been set free from sin. And you are no longer of this world. No longer do you have to be subject to this world's principles. No longer do you have to feel the weight of guilt because of your sin. No longer do you need to continue to walk in sin and walk in these ways that destroy your own soul and destroy the relationships that are most important to you. No longer do you have to live according to these principles. No longer do you have to get revenge if someone harms you. No longer do you have to hold on to your hatred for that person that abused you. No longer do you have to be bound by the world's definition of success that caused you to work and work and work and acquire more and more and more so that you can feel like you are something. No longer do you have to live according to that word that someone spoke to you years ago about how you are stupid or how you are worthless. You are not of this world. No longer do you need to fear anything at all. No longer do you need to fear sickness or death. You are not of this world. Instead, Peter says, you have been given a new identity. You are his treasured possession. It's become a bit of a Broadway saying recently. Maybe it was before I was here, I don't know. But we say it a lot in the men's group. God likes you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He gets a kick out of you. He might have a nickname for you. He likes you. He likes you. He enjoys your company. He suffered and died so that you could know him and so that he could be with you. In Christ, you are his treasured possession. He has chosen you. He has saved you. He has given you a new identity. You are not of this world. And he makes us not of this world, he makes us a heavenly people so that he can send us back into the world as a royal priesthood and as a holy nation. The Levites scattered throughout the different tribes of Israel is a prophetic picture of God's calling for the church today. Just as the Levites were scattered through every tribe in Israel, now we as followers of Christ, scattered throughout every country, scattered throughout every county in Indiana, scattered throughout every neighborhood in Fort Wayne, we are God's priests in those places. Called to live as holy lives. It is really cool, isn't it? Lives that are different from the world around us, so that the world will see and come to know the God that we serve. As priests in the world, we're given the task of declaring the knowledge of God, just as the priests in Israel did to Israel. The last words that Jesus said to us, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. To do what? To teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. The Great Commission is Jesus commissioning us to our priestly task in the world. Paul in Romans 15 says that his task of evangelism is a priestly task. He says in Romans 15, By the grace God gave me, I became a minister of Christ to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Our work of evangelism is one of the ways that we fulfill our role as this royal priesthood that Peter says that we are in 1 Peter chapter 2 called to be a people who make God known in the world and who teach people how to obey him. Here's another part of our priestly task. We are to live among those, our neighbors, our co-workers, so that we can intercede for them to God. As priests, called to live among our neighbors so that we can know their hurts, so that we can know their struggles, so that we can come to God and intercede for them, to speak to God for others. As priests, we are called to speak to others because of God, from God, and to speak. Uh, I've got it all mixed up now. We're right here in the middle, the people who are called to be those who speak to others and who speak to God on behalf of others. I think that in our evangelical churches, we've often forgotten that our presence with other people is the main way that he has chosen to make himself known to the world. I think in a lot of ways, we've used all different kinds of things, Christian tracts, Christian literature, billboards on the interstate. We've sought to invite friends to church because we think that this is where they meet God. All of those things are important, and they're good, and they're useful tools, and by all means, invite people to church. But none of those tools would ever be a substitute for your presence with your neighbor. Our presence with people as priests, as those who pray for others, who live a holy and righteous life as an example to the world, and who speak to others about who God is. We are a royal priesthood. Peter also calls us a holy nation. Our way of life as Christians in the world, living together as one body in unity and care for one another, is to be a witness to the world. Our existence as a church, the fact that we come together here as members of one body, is not just so that we can come here and have some kind of holy club together. Our way of life, our unity together, is for the purpose of a nation seen and making God's character in his gospel made known to the world. So look at how Peter finishes first Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 Dear friends I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world In other words dear friends you are not of this world you are aliens and strangers here I urge you as aliens and strangers as people not of this world to War, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. In other words, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back and live as a slave. Instead, live such good lives among the pagans. In other words, be sent into the world. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are a people who have been made a people not of this world in order that God could give us a new identity as his children, as his treasure possession, and send us into the world as his priests and as his holy people. Not of the world, but sent into the world. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are are humbled by the fact that you loved us first when we were not very lovable. And that you saved us through your son. That you gave us a whole new identity. You call us your treasure possession and your children. And not only that, you call us to a good work in the world. God, thank you. We receive this salvation and this identity And this calling and mission with humility and the recognition that without you, we cannot do it. So we thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us and calling us to this great task.